Let's go ahead and make our way in the Bible to Revelation chapter 21, if you will. And we continue as we draw near to the end of our study of biblical eschatology on Sunday mornings in a series we've entitled, The End is Only the Beginning. And the title of my message this morning is, The New Heaven and the New Earth. The study of eschatology, the study of the last days, unfortunately for many, ends with the return of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 19. However, though, John gives us three more chapters to let us know what happens after Jesus physically returns to this earth. Last week, we looked at Revelation chapter 20 in the Millennial Kingdom. But after that thousand-year period ends... We then move into the promise that has been given to us from the book of Isaiah, 700 years before Christ was born, of a new heaven and a new earth that God will provide for us. A new heaven and earth that had never been touched by sin or death or the sorrow that sin brought upon the earth, the wickedness and the evil that accompanied it. A new heaven, a new earth, for you and I as believers and followers of Jesus Christ to enjoy for all eternity. This is the hope that we have. And this morning as we begin in chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, we begin to look at the new heaven and the new earth. So let us begin in verse 1 of chapter 21. John writing, as he's exiled on this island of Patmos, he saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done, for I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers and the sexually immoral, sorcerers and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns and brimstone, which is the second death. During the course of the last several months, as we were all enjoying the quarantine lockdown, One afternoon when it was raining, Dina, Autumn, and I were sitting in our living room and we were 
doing one of those games, you know, where would you like to go? If you could only go to one place, one city, uh, where would that city be? You know, what city would that be? And of course, since we couldn't go anywhere, we were all sitting on the couch. We were just kind of working through this. So my wife started and she said, oh, I'd go to Tokyo. That's the city I would like to see. I'd like to see Tokyo. Oh, Tokyo, that's a, that's a good city to go see. And then autumn, of course, it was Paris. 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 She wanted to go to Paris. Yeah. Uh, then it came to me. I wanted to go to Peoria. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Personally, I'd like to see London. I would love to go to the British Museum and see the incredible uh, exhibits that they have there and see a little bit of London and, of course, uh, the history of it and so forth. Of course, we all said we would love to go to Jerusalem and to see Jerusalem. And then we encouraged ourselves by reminding ourselves that one day we're going to go and see the new Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that has been prepared for us by God Himself to enjoy for all eternity. And even though we wanted to visit those various cities, of course, with our phones in our hands, we began to Google the cities that we had just mentioned. And we thought about them. And even though that we were seeing various pictures on our phone, we knew that it didn't do it justice. You know, it wasn't the same. You know, yes, you're seeing pictures, but it's just not the same as being there. And, you know, you only find yourself wanting it more or desiring to go even uh, more than you did initially because the pictures have just simply whet your appetite. And that's the way I feel about these chapters. I feel that these chapters merely whet our appetite for the new heavens and the new earth. Let us remember that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul speaks of an individual that he knew, I believe he's speaking of himself, who had the uh, opportunity to see the third heaven, the heaven in which God resides. And when he returned... He could not verbalize, he could not put in a written word with the limited vocabulary in which he had the splendor of all that he saw. And that would be so true, wouldn't it? Even if you had pictures of Tokyo or London or uh, Paris, it still wouldn't be the same. And even if you went to those cities... You could see those cities from various perspectives, couldn't you? For example, if I went to London, one of the things that I personally would want to do is go on that immense uh, uh, Ferris wheel that they have there. Have you ever seen that thing? It's enormous. And of course, I can only imagine that my perspective of London would be completely different from the top of that Ferris wheel than it is, you know, standing there in the midst of the city itself. Or if we went to Tokyo and we went to their sky tree, as it's called, the highest point in Tokyo, looking over the city of Tokyo, what a, what a different experience that would be and perspective that would be. And of course, if we were to walk the, the streets of Paris, as we made our way down the river towards the, you know, uh, the church of Notre Dame, that would appear one way, but if we stood on the top of the Eiffel Tower, that would 
Paris would look completely different, wouldn't it? Same here in Chicago. We stood on the top of the Sears Tower. I refuse to call it the Willis Tower. <laughs> Just old school that way. Chicago looks completely different, doesn't it? The perspective is everything. And so one of my deterrents from teaching these chapters is that I don't want to diminish your perspective of the new heavens and the new earth. Because like Paul found himself in that position of problem when he couldn't verbally describe what heaven is like, I believe John looking and seeing what God is revealing to him of this new heaven and new earth is barely scratching the surface. But what we do know and what we have been given is glorious in and of itself. And as he begins, he says very clearly, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There are many theologians and scholars who debate on how the new heaven or earth will come about. Will God simply rejuvenate the heavens and earth that we are currently occupying today? The term heavens here in our particular text refers to the heavens, the galaxies in which we look at, the second heavens, if we refer to Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians 12. The new heavens, the new earth, never touched by sin or by death and the sorrow that it brings. Wickedness and evil have no place within its borders, within its walls. It's brand new. This term passing away is actually used elsewhere in the New Testament. Of course, Peter refers to it. If you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter uses the same term when he talks about the passing away of this world. And as you make your way there, I will begin reading it for you. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what matter of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will dissolve, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so Peter depicts for us a very clear understanding that this heaven and this earth will be destroyed. This heaven and this earth will be done away with. And a new heaven, a new earth is put in its place. It won't simply be, as Chuck Swindoll likes to say, a sequel to what we have now, a part two. It won't be the next chapter in the story. It will be something brand new altogether. And I think that's the only way 
that we can truly enjoy a sin-free environment. Now, let me direct your attention to one further place in the New Testament that this term passed away is used by Paul. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When he talks about the work of Christ in our lives, when he discusses who we are in Jesus Christ, that we are new creations, all things have what? Passed away. All things are brand new. The moment that you and I came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, this work began in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. A newness is now being birthed within us. And that is the beginning of this new heaven and new earth, which we will reside in for all eternity. Now you and I know that right now in our current state, The new wrestles with the old, and the old wrestles with the new, unfortunately. But we will come to that point where the old will be no more, and the new will be the uh, uh, body in which we dwell for all eternity. Stating that this process began in Jesus' first coming and will climax with the new heaven and the new earth that is promised for us, that John describes for us here. In verse 2, then John continues, and he says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. There is one day that I will never forget, and that is my wedding day. I will never forget that moment that I stood at the front of the church and I looked back and Dina was there in her gown, and it was just, I was floored. I was like, oh, Lord, I I don't deserve this. You're too good. You know, and just sitting there watching her, waiting for her to turn around and run the other way. But she didn't. Paul, I'm sorry, John is describing the new Jerusalem, which at this time, when John wrote this letter, exiled on the island of Patmos, the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Roman Empire. Most believe that Revelation was written around 95 AD, so 25 years after the Roman Empire destroyed the entire physical city of Jerusalem. The Jewish people no longer having a a nation, a city for themselves, they were then scattered abroad throughout the known world. And now John sees that a new Jerusalem shall be prepared just as the bride of Christ, the church, is prepared for our Savior. So shall the city in which we shall dwell for all eternity is also brand new. When a young man was betrothed to a woman in Judaism, the betrothal period would last a year, and part of that year would be spent with the young man leaving and going to prepare a place for his bride and himself to reside, normally building on an addition to his family's home. And when that section of that home was finished, he would then come back for her. And then take her. And that's why she would wait with great anticipation because she never knew the arrival of her betrothed husband. 
That is the depiction that is used throughout the New Testament, this betrothal marriage uh, ceremony in Judaism to illustrate and to demonstrate for us the return of Jesus Christ. He says, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come back for you. And not only does he prepare for us our uh, spiritual bodies to enjoy eternity to its fullest, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, but he also prepares a place for us to dwell for all eternity, just like a young man would who's betrothed to his, uh, his wife and goes and prepares a place for her and him to dwell in their new life together leaving father and mother and becoming one. So like the church adorned as a bride, so too is the holy city of Jerusalem. And in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He shall dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. In John's Gospel, John demonstrates the deity of Jesus Christ, that He was God. And then when you make your way through the first chapter, when you get to verse 14, he says, The Word of God then became flesh and dwelt amongst us. In the first advent, or the first coming of Jesus Christ, God dwelt amongst His people in the second person of the Trinity interacting with his creation, showing and demonstrating the Father. For as Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In the new heaven and the new earth, there is no obstruction. There is no limitation to our interaction and fellowship with God. It is unrestricted. Unlike the temple that was divided into various courts, of course, the Holy of Holies being the place that the Ark of the Covenant was stored, and that only the high priest could enter into in a yearly basis, only after going through a ritual ceremony of cleansing to allow him into that holy of holies. And then, of course, you had the outer court, and then you had the, outer, the court of the, the Jewish men, the court of the uh, Gentiles, the court of the women, etc. Et All of those courts have now been done away with. Freely allowing ourselves to interact with God. God dwelling with us. That He'll be our God, our King, and we'll have access to Him unprohibited. This is exactly what was meant that moment that the curtain tore from top to bottom. Allowing all to come to God the Father through the mediation of Jesus Christ. In the new heaven and the new earth, we will have free access to our God and he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes there shall be no more death no more sorrow no more crying there shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away isn't that a credible thought to think of with all the injustice and the wrong in our world today the things that are now coming to light that are just appalling to our, our convictions and our understanding of right and wrong. As we see our world continuously move farther and farther to those places 
of just complete depravity. To think that all of the suffering that sin has brought will come to an end. That the death that sin uh, results in will come to an end. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more crying. What an incredible time that'll be. And as John writing these things, undoubtedly as he's sitting there in the island of Patmos, seeing these things, his heart is swelling with hope and in great anticipation. And then he is reassured in verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. You can take it to the bank. It's going to happen. There is no doubt about it. As we are challenged in our world constantly by the corruption that we find within it, the injustice that is uh, readily uh, making its way through our world, it's sometimes easy to lose sight of this, to lose hope in this. And yet John wanted to encourage those Christians at this moment who would read this who were scattered throughout the new world because it truly was a new world to them. They had lost Israel. They had lost Jerusalem. And now they were trying to find their place within this world. They felt as outcasts. They were being hunted and persecuted by the Roman Empire. Nero had thrown every aspect of his weight of authority against the persecution of Christians due to the fact that he believed that they had set fire to a portion of Rome as insurrectionists, history tells us. And they had nothing to do with it whatsoever. In fact, now we see that Nero is the one who caused the fires himself. He wanted to destroy an area of the city so he could build further temples to himself. But when it went awry, he blamed someone else. Hmm, doesn't that sound like the narrative today? When they do something and it goes awry, they blame somebody else. Isn't that interesting how history repeats itself? And then the Christian would read this. Longing and looking forward to that day. In great anticipation. Being assured by God Himself that these things were true and faithful. Substantiating that in the identity of Him who is speaking to John. And He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. And he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Christians often had to demonstrate their faith in Jesus Christ at this time by giving their life for Jesus Christ. Historians tell us that Nero, the deranged lunatic in which he was, and I'm convinced of that from historical studies, loved to ride in the courtyard of his palace in a chariot naked. Sorry, I had to give you that detail. I don't want you to camp out on that thought. But to illuminate his courtyard, he dipped Christians in oil, hung them on posts, and lit them on fire, alive. Christians were dying for their faith. They were experiencing the persecution that we're seeing in areas like 
around the world today. Like Nicaragua. I'm sorry, Nigeria, excuse me. Wrong continent. They were losing their life for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now he says, I will give of life freely to any one of those who are with me. But he says, don't be afraid. And not only does he welcome those who believe, but he also warns that those who are cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There is no place for sin in this new world. We in America like to believe that we are actually better than we actually are. And we comfort ourselves, justify this, by comparing ourselves to others who are worse than us. Thinking that God is going to grade on a curve. Thinking that God is going to allow us into heaven simply because A, of our understanding of His love for us, or because we're not nearly as bad as those who are around us. And either way, we're wrong. We're wrong. For God's love for us isn't this blanket that just covers a multitude of sin before Him, but He demonstrated His love for us through the sending of His only begotten Son that whomever believes in Him shall not die, but have everlasting love. Secondly, God doesn't grade on a curve, but there is one standard for getting into the kingdom of heaven, and that is perfection that none of us are capable of obtaining. It is only in and through the finished work of Jesus Christ that we can stand positionally before God blameless. But those who are not believing, who die in their sins, have no part in this new heaven or new earth. In verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God having the glory of God, and her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also she had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and the twelve angels at the gates, and the names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, Three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. And now we come to that aspect where I don't believe words do it justice. And notice to view the new city, the new place, this new Jerusalem, 
He takes him to a mountain to see it just as being taken to the top of the Eiffel Tower or the Sears Tower or the Sky Tree in Tokyo or the Ferris Wheel in London to be able to see everything as it is. And the first thing that's described to him are these gates, the entranceways that are guarded by angels. Let us remember that after Adam and Eve fell in the garden and they were expelled from the Garden of Eden, God then placed a cherubim at the gate, not allowing them to once again return and eat of the second tree, the tree of eternal life. But now these gates appear to be wide open. And though angels stay by them, the foundations and the names of these gates are the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, are the names of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. And the picture that John is being given is that this new city, this new Jerusalem, began that moment that Abraham took that one step away from Haran back in the book of Genesis. Simply being guided by the promises of God that God would bless him in such a unique way. And then, of course, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came the twelve sons of Israel. And the nation of Israel was meant to be that light in the world. It was meant to show and to demonstrate to all of the world what it looked like to be governed by God and the blessings that they reaped due to their uh, being governed by God and, of course, the curses that they reaped when they were disobedient to God. And unfortunately, that was more uh, conducive to their conduct. But then came the person of Jesus Christ. And it progressed and the new covenant was established through him and furthered into the world by the 12 apostles, showing and demonstrating that through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 sons of Israel, Messiah would come. And after Messiah came, those apostles filled with the Holy Spirit would take the gospel of Jesus Christ into all of the world. And this is the method of entrance into the new heaven and the new earth. Uninhibited. Other than by unbelief. Showing that these gates are open, which John will indicate to us. But also the angel with him, like in the book of Ezekiel, is given a rod to measure this city. And he who talked with me, verse 15, had a gold reed to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And the city laid out as a square in its length. It, its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs, or 600 feet for one furlong. And its length, breadth, and height are equal. And he measured the wall 140 I'm sorry, 44 cubits according to the measure of man. That is, of an angel. And before we get to the construction, let us understand that this perfect square was a representation of the Holy of Holies. 
the most interportion of the tabernacle or the temple that was created. The perfect dwelling place. And we don't have any reason to believe that it isn't actually these dimensions, literally. But what it meant to those who were reading this, such as John and the others. It meant that no more temple was needed. There were no more restrictions for access to God. That God dwelt with His people. And you can look at these dimensions and some debate if it's a square or if it's a pyramid. Some debate how long it was uh, sitting over the earth during the millennial kingdom. But for our study this morning, I don't think any of us will disagree with the fact we're truly not going to truly understand this until we get there, are we? So I can describe to you how many feet the Eiffel Tower is, but until you get to the very top of it, you're not going to really appreciate it, are you? Same with the sky tree in Tokyo. That Ferris wheel. You know, you ever stand at the bottom of these things and it's like, oh, that's not too bad. Like, you know, a little kid standing at the pool for the high dive. Oh, I can do that. And then you get up there and you're like, what was I thinking? And then you have that optical illusion as you look down from the high... Hasn't this happened to anybody else? You can tell I'm still psychologically scarred from this as a kid. And all my friends are cheering me on. Go, Eric. No. Chicken! Wimp! Jump! Dive! The first time I dove off a high dive, I did one of the best belly flops that you could ever possibly imagine. I walked out of the pool that day. People thought I fell asleep on my back because I was red half of my body. I'm like, no, it's just the way you hit the water. But then there's that optical illusion where you look down and you don't see the top of the water as much as you see the bottom of the pool. And you're just like, no, that's way down there. I could give you the measurements, the 1,300 miles wide and high it is, but until we get there, right? Until we get there. But he's describing the inner sanction, sanctuary of the temple. He wants people to know that that perfection is found in this new heaven and new earth that was found in the Holy of Holies. And then he goes on to describe it in verse 17. He says, the measure of its walls... 144 cubits, according to the measure of man, that is, of an angel. Of course, the walls around Jerusalem was its source of protection and security. And that protection and security led to the peace of Jerusalem. Notice that in verse 1, one of the little pictures we're given is that there's no more sea at this time. See, when individuals at that time looked out into the sea, it was formidable for them to do so. Travel was incredibly uh, nefarious at that time, or difficult. You would go on a, a voyage on a ship and you didn't know if you were going to get to where that ship was going or not. Just read about Paul's adventures on a ship and the numerous times that he found himself floating in the sea 2 Corinthians 12. It meant death, doom, and so forth. And none of those foreboding aspects of this world will exist in the new heaven and the new earth. But now the wall is given to us, which would be a sense of security, a sense of peace. 
It would be a sense of protection, knowing that we are protected by our God and that we could finally rest in Him. And then in verse 18, the constructions of its walls was like jasper. And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. And the foundations of the walls of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. First, the foundation was jasper. The second was seraphim. The third was um, uh, Caledonian. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sarnyx. Sardis was the sixth, the seventh crystallite, the eighth Burel, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopraise, I'm sorry, chrysopraise, um, the eleventh jaconeth, and the twelfth amethyst. Now obviously John is explaining to us the glory in which he sees this temple. And you can do a study of each one of these stones, but I'm going to tell you before you embark on that study that other versions of the Bible use different names and different stones at this point. So what is he referring to here? These 12 stones. That's interesting to me. 12. It's because when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, he wore the Uman Thurman on his chest, which was 12 jewels with the name of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Exodus 28.30 tells us that the reason he did this is that the 12 tribes of Israel were meant to be close to his heart, the Bible says. I believe that the foundations demonstrated for us in these stones. And undoubtedly, John is trying to give us in the language that he has available to him what this looks like and how it is viewed by him as he is isolated on the island of Patmos. But the meaning of this all, the foundation of the new work, the new heavens, the new earth, and all that God did through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, through Jesus Christ and the apostles, was all based on the fact that we are close to the heart of God, that He loves us. Everything that God has done for us, He has done because He loves us. Even when He corrects us, He loves us chastens us like uh, children to help us grow and to develop and to become the men and women of God that he has created us to be. So as John is looking at this foundation and describing it for us within the confines of the language in which he has and the stones in which he describes, let us all agree that it's got to be awesome to see, right? But if it is a parallel to the Uma and Thurman, let us understand that all that God did, including the new heavens and the new earth, are given to us because God loves us. And then he goes on. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent 
glass. I've never seen transparent gold. Obviously, it's indicating that he is trying to describe what he's seeing. In verse 22, he now brings out the glory of this place. He says, but I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved walked shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth shall bring glory and honor into it. Its gates, this is straight out of the book of Isaiah. Its gates shall be not shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And there shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall be by no means enter it into anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Isn't that incredible? That's just the Sunday school out there. The other day they wanted to recreate the burning bush. I didn't know what to think about that. But Dina likes to keep them outside as much as she can. Folks, I can't give you a better description of this new heaven and new earth than John has. And you can dive into the various aspects of it and track back through the Old Testaments to maybe even draw out more details. But the bottom line of it all is that this is awaiting you and I who are in Christ. You know, one said it this way. That the new heaven and the new earth should also be called the things that will be there and the things that will not. The three things that will be there is the holy city, the new Jerusalem, that John just finished describing for us. Let us never forget, number two, that God himself will be with us. There will be no more separation. And that verse that says, draw near to God and he shall draw near to you won't be needed any longer because we will be in the presence of God. And a true righteousness, number three, shall reign throughout the city. No more corruption, no more injustice, sorrow, sadness, and tears, but it'll be perfect as God always hoped and desired His creation to be. But notice that there will be no more sea, number one, of the 12 things that won't be there any longer because all chaos and disorder symbolized by the sea in ancient times will be gone. No more tears because all hurt will be removed. No more death because mortality is swallowed up by life. No more mourning because all sorrow will be perfectly comforted by God himself. No more crying because joy will reign supreme in the new heaven and the new earth. No more pain because all disease will be expelled in the new heaven and the new earth. No more thirst because they who desire will be able to freely drink of the water of life. No more wickedness, because evil shall be banished. No more temple, because God will be everywhere. No more night, because the glory of God will shine continuously. No more closed gates, because God's door will always be open to us. And number 12, no more curse. I'd like to read this to you. As one pastor summed it up, in a more practical way. And we'll close with this this morning. 
There will be no more funeral homes, no more hospitals, nor abortion clinics, no more divorce courts, no more brothels, no bankruptcy court, no psychiatric wards, and no treatment centers. There will be no more pornography, no more dial-a-porn, no more teenage suicide, no more AIDS, no more cancer, no more talk shows. (laughs) I like how you put that in there. No more rape, no missing children, no drug problems, no drive-by shootings, no racial tensions, no, pre- no prejudice. There will be no misunderstandings, no injustice, no depression, no hurtful words, no gossip, no hurt feelings, no worry, no emptiness, and no child abuse. There will be no more wars, no financial worries, no emotional heartaches, no physical pain, nor spiritual flatness, no relationship divisions, no more murderers, and no more uh, casseroles. <laughs> he really didn't like casseroles. That's what he wrote here. There will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more separation, no more starvation, no more arguments, no more accidents, no more emergency departments, no doctors, no nurses, no heart monitors, no rust, no perplexing questions, no false teachers, no financial shortage, no hurricanes nor bad habits, nor decay, nor locks. We will never need to confess sin any longer. Never need to apologize again. Never need to straighten out a strained relationship. Never have to resist Satan again. Never have to resist temptation any longer. Never and no more will these things be.